1967 or 1969, Philip Reich wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in this book, he said that the therapeutic culture, which is the one in which we live now, right to this day, nearly 50 years later, believes in a manipulatable sense of well-being and that somehow we're able to uh, get through things if we just have the right therapeutic answer. I heard at the sermon discussion group that the highest percentage of college degrees that are awarded these days are for psychology. So you may make of that what you will. I mention this because it's part of the therapeutic culture to discuss things like what my sermon is going to be about today, humility, and how we understand what it means in the history of the word, and also how maybe we have a little inkling in the gospel, how the Savior understands the nature of humility uh, based on at least some of the definitions that Christian people have used over time, because it's at the center of our self-understanding in terms of improvement in the spiritual life. What does it mean uh, to be humble, and how do we understand that? Most of the time, the therapeutic efforts that are engaged in in our culture is to talk to somebody about developing the interior self-regulation and strength to tolerate or bear humiliation. Uh, I, I can't remember how many years ago it was in California. Maybe it was 15 or 20 now, but there was a commission in the state of California that uh, was constituted to help people work with low self-esteem. When I, when I feel in a, in a bad mood, I think to myself sometimes that there are some of us who could use a little low self-esteem. <laughs> right? The word humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means soil or ground. And its original meaning denotes low estate and the cowed attitude likely to result from it. In Christianity, the word acquired more positive connotations. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death. In some circles, it was understood as adopting a posture of self-degradation, usually in an appeal for God's mercy and help. There's a lot of people who grovel uh, to the great wish granter in the sky if they think it will get them somewhere. As time went on, it became primarily the virtue that was opposed to pride. Now, thank God for Thomas Aquinas, who showed up in the 13th century, and he wrote about a lot of things, and one of the things he wrote about was humility. And one of the things he said about humility was that it involves knowing yourself. Humility is the right kind of self-knowledge. It is truthfulness about yourself and your abilities. Some people are endowed in some ways more than others and vice versa. So knowing something about yourself uh, is an important thing. He said, you must know how high you can reach. 
Now, in the entrepreneurial culture in which we find ourselves, that's not believed anymore either. You know, we used to say your uh, reach should not exceed your grasp, nothing doing. We're, we're all in, right? So we believe that uh, we shouldn't ever understand that there are limits even to our own reach. And that's okay. This isn't going to kill anybody. I like Thomas Aquinas' definition. Martin Luther said, Humility is the joyful acceptance of God's will. Not bad. I think the best thing uh, is the idea of self-knowledge and how we understand it. So let's move to the parable. Biblical scholars call this parable the parable of the great dinner. And it's a teaching by Jesus about a certain species of humility, it's kind of tricky. So, But let me say something first about Luke's gospel, just to remind ourselves. Luke was a Gentile Christian. He wrote his gospel between 80 and 85 A.D. There's no reason to assume he wasn't a doctor. And he wrote his gospel from a community of Gentile Christians some of whom were quite close to Judaism in terms of their admiration and respect for, for the Jewish ethical and moral standards and for other things that they thought admirable. But they didn't, you know, men didn't get circumcised. They didn't agree to the dietary laws. They didn't do a lot of these things. But Luke was speaking, as was his community, out of a Hellenistic context, a Greek context. And so we understand that what he is saying is deeply influenced by that cultural understanding. You know, more and more work has been done in the right sense. It used to be done in, in the wrong sense, in my opinion, about Jesus's, the influence on Jesus' preaching and teaching of Hellenism. But now the biblical scholarship has gone in the right direction, I think, and has said what is central to understanding him is that he is a first century Palestinian Jew. But he lived near a, a Greek town, and now it's just assumed uh, that the people who study the New Testament uh, believe that Jesus spoke Greek in addition to Aramaic and read Hebrew. And this is important because what he's saying today is going to resonate with people who are Hellenists to know something about big dinners, wedding banquets, and so on. It's part of Greek, was part of the Alexander the Great, the Greek culture, that there were uh, often big dinners and events where people would come together and eat, and then they would drink wine and recite poetry or discuss philosophical ideas or maybe some less philosophical ideas. And as a matter of fact, these meetings were called symposium. That's where we get the word. And so there were rules about what happened. For, or just for example, this is another issue at another time, but uh, at a symposium, uh, you'd go to for the dinner, and you were served at the dinner by, it says in Greek, doulos, slaves. They served you the dinner. When it was time for the poetry and the drinking of the wine and the philosophy, 
the doulos left, and in comes diakonos, young men who serve the wine to the older men in the symposium. So at these events, there's a pecking order and who sits where. And in the Jewish context, um, Luke is speaking about this and about wedding banquets and how you do this. Now, if, if the parable stopped at the advice that he gives, it would be sort of helpful hints from the Savior of the world about how to properly socially engage in these big dinners, right? <laughs> In other words, where to sit and what to do first. It's kind of a humility that is undertaken in an artificial sense for the purpose of personal advancement within the group. So he says, sit in the cheap seats. Do not sit in the big seats, the expensive seats. That way you may be invited up. And if you're uh, being invited up, it's going to be a good thing. Now, one of the reasons it's important to be a student of the Bible is that one of the, and if I had been, not been on vacation, I would have had us read it. Uh, there are three options for the Old Testament reading today. And one of them is from the book of Proverbs. It's very short. And here's what it says as a potential first reading for this Sunday. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. It is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Where do you think he got it from? Where do you think Luke got it from? You know, is there, is there, are there any connections here? So it has something to do about that. But here's then what Jesus talks to them about after speaking about who's going to be exalted and who's going to be humbled and how we think about the great and the near great and the not so great, we also think about the whole social round, you know, of big dinners, inviting people home for big dinners, reciprocating, making sure you're always even with who you need to be even with, and go through all that sort of thing because you think it might be helpful to you uh, and moving forward in life. It seemed to me as a kid that my parents were just consumed with that. How to keep even or to make sure that nobody's one up or whatever, you know? And Jesus is preaching against that. He's teaching against that. And he said, you need to do something else. Now, bear in mind when he, said, when he says at the very end, you've got to go out and find the, bl the, 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 bl the blind, the lame, the halt, and so forth, and invite them to a big dinner. It's kind of hyperbole, isn't it? It's not that it shouldn't be done, or in some cases maybe even is done. But most of us don't do that all the time. And here's how I read that and interpret it when I'm privately meditating on it. I think that Luke, who is the great theologian of the church in the New Testament, the one who believes that it is part of the plan and purpose of God for the church to come into being, his word, Jesus' parables and teachings, are therefore for Luke 
Jesus' word to the church. How do we as church, both personally and corporately, uh, extend? And what do we do when we understand that people on the margins need to come in? God has invited everybody in. The people who wrote the New Testament realized that what Jesus was preaching and teaching about can be found in their own sacred literature, which we call the Old Testament. So if you read the book of the prophet Isaiah, for example, who says that God is inviting everybody in and that all can come into God's saving embrace. And it is incumbent upon us who are believers to extend that invitation. There are great difficulties with that for many people. How is it that we do that and extend? And what do we do? And what is the means by which we must do this? You know, we hear that about a lot of issues, don't we, in this country? You don't want to go too fast. Don't go too fast. It's not a good idea to go too fast. I saw a wonderful movie, some of you may have, when I was on vacation. Lee Daniels, The Butler. It's a wonderful movie. And here's a guy who would have said, you don't want to go too fast. And people are ready to throw cold water on that, right? His oldest son was. Well, do you think maybe not going too fast here and keep on keeping on here are mutually exclusive? Is one a poor strategy and the other one a correct strategy? Maybe they're both necessary, you know? The butler was a great man. And it's an example how moving forward can be both gradual and it can also be pushed. We just commemorated an event that happened 50 years ago in this country where we had the forces within the African-American community saying, you don't want to move too fast, and others who said, we're going to keep on moving. And we have to. So wherever you find yourself on that continuum, the issue is moving, you know. The issue is being uh, engaged in creating a world where it is easier for people to be good, creating a world where it is easy, easier for us to get along together. Uh, this is one of the hardest things we face in this country now. Most of us, you know, associate with people like ourselves. We do. And that is something that is just a fact. But it's also important that uh, if that's our comfort zone, we have to realize that, be that as it may, uh, we're associating with people like ourselves, not to, at the expense of somebody else. You get to do that in this country. You can associate with somebody like you. It's okay. But sometimes we kind of lose sight of what that means, that everybody should get to do that. So this week, think about what you do well. Think about the importance of knowing yourself the capacity for human beings 
to deceive themselves is infinite. So when we know ourselves a little bit better, we may be able to be careful about deceiving ourselves too much. I had a guy say to me once years ago, he said, if I'm in my car and I'm driving to do something I know I shouldn't be doing, but I have all green lights, then it must be right to do. (laughs) How's that for a piece of, Jesuits would call that casuistry. Right? If I have all green lights, then maybe, I, I, maybe it is okay to do and not okay to do. So every one of us is capable of that. Give thanks for the ability to know yourself. Give thanks for the fact that God unconditionally accepts and forgives and loves you and needs you to be part of this enterprise where we create a society where it is easier for people to be good. Amen.